Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Insects, they're what's for dinner, or at least they might be in the near future, as farmers and scientists search for new ways to feed the world. Today I'm chatting with Daniela Martin about why she says bugs are serious business, the best insects she's ever tasted, and her travels around the globe to find and taste new bugs. I think probably the most interesting experience I had was in Thailand when I went to visit a man who farms sago grubs. Because in Thailand, that's a thing you can do. There's something like 25,000 edible cricket farms in Thailand. This, you know, raising insects to sell for consumption is absolutely a career path there already. Plus, we share our recipe for Barbados grilled fish. Alex I News tells us about the art and science of making mozzarella at home. But now it's my interview with Ed Levine, founder of the food website Serious Eats. Levine just released his memoir, Serious Eater, a food lover's perilous quest for pizza and redemption. Ed, thanks for being on Milk Street. It's great to be with you, Chris. My mother was actually a communist, and you say your parents met at a communist party meeting on campus at City College. (laughs) You know, I remember uh, you describing your life at the Kimball family table, and it was very different than the Levine family table. Well, my, mine was very buttoned down, uptight. Right. Uh, everything. The trains ran on time. But we both had candy stores a few minutes away. Uh, you grab your bike, and that's where you got your table talk pies and all the other stuff. 
But my favorite thing is you said it was an ice cream place, Smitty's, I guess, and you could buy ice cream on credit. Is that right? Yes, I could buy ice cream on credit. Uh, Smitty was the independent ice cream truck. And my parents said, okay, now don't get ice cream from the Good Humor truck because the Good Humor truck was the man, right? That was the <laughs> corporate. And so Smitty, Smitty would – he would do two things that, that the Good Humor guys couldn't or wouldn't do. One, he would split a popsicle. Really? So he would huh? sell a half a popsicle and he would give you credit because he knew you were good for it. I've never heard someone refer to the good humor man as the man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he never had a chance with no. the Levine boys. I guess not. Um, you quote E.B. White, uh, no one should come to New York unless he's willing to be lucky. I never heard that before. What a great quote. And I guess that kind of sums up your career with oh Series Seeds, Oh, my God. Right? You know, one of the dedications in the book, as you know, is to the Series Eats community who taught me that everything and anything is possible with the aid of hard work, a good idea, and a little luck. And, you know, I love that E.B. White phrase because New York can seem like a forbidding and very big place and a hard place to find your community, but it's also a place that has a community for every human being on this earth, whether you can find it or not. And that's where the luck comes in. And it's what really allowed me to launch Serious Eats. So let's talk about the dark side of this, which is the business side. Uh, yeah. So when you were raising money, uh, you were told to write a business plan that had scale. So one of your business plans showed a million dollars of profit in the first year, 10 million in the second year and almost 40 million in the third year. Right. Yeah, because investors needed to believe, right? Yes, they needed to believe because you couldn't say what I really want to do is just do what I love and get paid for it. In the beginning, I was I was calling on venture capitalists. They're not trying to give me a good job. They're not trying to give me my dream job, right? They're trying to get paid. And they don't they want a grand slam home run. They want 10 times their money. So that's the numbers I gave them. My uh, wife works with me in the business. Uh, you had, you know, a, a similar issue with your wife. I, I, what, what is it like going through all that stress? I, you say in the book it took its toll. Just oh, talk, talk about God. how that worked. Sure. I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up because when you fall in love, you don't ask your partner what their tolerance for risk is. <laughs> And of course, I didn't know that when I started Serious Eats, I was going to end up borrowing, you know, well over half a million dollars that my wife and I had to personally guarantee because one of the secrets of starting a small business and getting a loan is that there's no way to get a loan without personally guaranteeing it, right? They need some collateral and good press clippings. You know, Serious Eats being called the future of food media, they didn't consider that collateral. <laughs> and, you know, I put her through hell. I didn't, at the time, it was just survival. But looking back on it, I think it's nothing short of a miracle that we're still married and that we made it through the Serious Eats gauntlet. You did say once you sold Serious Eats, quote, now that the company was sold, I was seen as the man. The Serious Eaters felt like I'd put our whole family up for adoption. The problem was I felt that way too. Yeah, it was, you know, it was one of these things because I was really invested in not being the man right, in building this tribe of like-minded people and giving them a place that would allow us all for our work to be a calling. So all of a sudden, some people who actually knew how to run businesses uh, own the business. Um, and I think everyone now who's at Serious Eats, they, they are very happy with the 
people who bought the company who let Sirius Eats still be Sirius Eats, but it doesn't mean that it's not a different feeling. And I think that's inevitable. And I just didn't know. I I, I didn't expect to feel like the man. And it was a really uncomfortable feeling for both me and them. But let, let me ask uh, a tough question, maybe. If you were the founder of Sirius Eats, weren't you always, from the perspective of the other people there, the man? I mean, you, you never just were one of the guys on staff. You were the guy. So maybe this whole time you were, actually were the man from their perspective. Yes, I think that's right. I don't. I just think I could never <laughs> Right, admit that's it. what I meant. Yeah. You yeah, didn't know it. <laughs> Yeah, I just didn't know it, you know, and it's funny you mentioned this because I just got an email from uh, Maggie Hoffman, who uh, became our managing editor over time, and she said, oh, your publicist sent me a copy of Serious Eater. She goes, I had no idea. What what an insane ride. I basically hid it from people as best as I could, although I have a terrible poker face, but you know, it's it's one of those things that I just didn't want to see myself as the man, although they depended on me. And I knew that, right? Because I always had to worry about, do I have enough money for payroll? And so often I would go without getting paid, but that's just part of being the man. And I, don't, I just right. don't think I wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. Well, you still wanted to be one of the kids at the table, right? Right. I mean, that's, yeah. Ed, thank you so much. You've been a real pleasure. Thank you, Chris. That was Ed Levine. His memoir is called Serious Eater, A Food Lover's Perilous Quest for Pizza and Redemption. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a uh, new batch of questions? Yes, Chris. I am very ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Nancy Gold from Cambridge. Hi, Nancy from Cambridge. How can we help you today? Um, I called a few months ago because at the time uh, Passover was coming, and I always make coconut macaroons, which is a sort of traditional thing at Passover. Right. And I had in the past used a really good recipe that called for egg whites, but now several members of my family have become vegan, so I called to ask you guys what I should do about it. And you might remember yes. that you recommended substituting aquafaba that, right, for the egg white. Chickpea liquid. What recipe did you actually make? So it's a recipe that you might be familiar with, Chris. Um, it's a triple coconut macaroon Uh-oh. recipe that calls for four egg whites. I substituted for each egg white two tablespoons of the aquafaba. And it didn't work. It was a qualified success, I would say. Um, the vegans were thrilled. And the only problem with it is that they didn't really hold together as well as I would hope. I remember both of you now saying that the aquafaba was not beaten and that was not part of the recipe. So actually, um, Nancy, after we had that call, I did a little rummaging around on the Internet and Mm -hmm. I came up with a recipe for aquafaba macaroons. And Uh this recipe had you beating the aquafaba and then adding the sweetener to it and actually getting them, you know, some volume out of them and then folding in the rest of the ingredients. Next year, I might basically make these once a year, even though they're delicious. They're really, really good. Um, And they tasted just as good, but you kind of had to eat them with a fork. Yeah. um, Because they did tend (laughs) to fall They were sort of dense, but aquafaba will beat up. You add a little bit of cream of tartar to it to begin with. Right. Next year, I can try whipping them, or maybe I'll make half a recipe and try whipping them. Okay. Thanks for right. following up, Nancy, Nancy. Thanks. Take care. Okay. Okay. You guys bye. take care too. Thank right. you. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lauren. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm good. I'm calling from Hendersonville, North Carolina. Lauren, how can we help you? Well, I have a question about measuring ice water when you're making bread. I've been making bread for about the past year and trying a lot of different types. And when I've come to recipes for maybe like the Zatar bread or calzone dough, it calls for 
ice water to be measured. And that has kind of stumped me because I've wondered, do you measure out, say, one and a third cups of water with ice in it? Do you make ice water and then pour out one and a third cups of it? Do you measure the water and then add ice to it? What's the best way to do this for a Um, dough recipe? The answer is B. You put ice in water, let it chill, then measure out the whatever you want. But I have a question. Why are Are you using using ice ice water water for bread? Yeah, I'm like totally baffled. Is this a yeast bread? No, it's in calzone dough. Oh. Calzone dough has yeast in it. It has yeast in it. Well, it calls for it in the recipe. It says one and a third cups ice water. What's the rest of the recipe? It's got yeast, ice water, maybe some honey in it, salt, bread flour. It's pretty simple. And, and a then, lot of times you do it in a food processor. Oh. I think the reason is because it'll heat up the dough in a food processor. Okay. And so the ice water, I think, the water's cold. It's to make sure the dough doesn't get too hot to kill off the yeast. I think that's what's going on. Now that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah put ice and water together, and then you measure the water out of that right. cup. But if you weren't using a food processor, you wouldn't use ice water. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, that was easy. Yes. Lauren, All take right. care. <laughs> yeah, you too. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, we probably have an answer. Give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Eileen from Rochester, New York. Hi, Eileen. How can we help you today? I have a question about making basil pesto in bulk so that you can keep it. Um, I've tried various things. I've tried freezing it. I've tried putting olive oil on it. I've tried blanching the basil, and I never get completely satisfactory results. And I get a lot of basil from my CSA share. I have an answer, but Sarah, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say that the enemy of basil is oxygen, so it seems like the olive oil thing should work, just a little layer on top. Tell me what happens. Well, I put the layer on top, and then I go to use some, so I scrape off some of the olive oil, and then I put more olive oil on top. So either I don't cover it all, or I have to put so much in because I took a scoop of it out. It keeps diluting it. Do you also put plastic wrap right on top of it? No, I've not done that. Because that really helps, too. You just want to keep the air away from it. I've had gardens all my life, and I've grown lots of basil. I've tried to freeze in ice cube trays. That was the thing I came down to. So I'd freeze it overnight in ice cube trays, pop them out, put them in big double wrap bags. But it's not nearly as good as the real deal. The real deal. Fresh. Uh, well, the two problems. Most basil in the United States has very little flavor compared to Italy. They're bigger leaves, and they're coarse and less flavorful. That's interesting. The little tiny guy, that makes yeah. me think about the little tiny basil. And also and the way you make is. it is very different in Italy because they start with the nuts and the garlic and they puree that and then they'll add in some of the cheese, then they'll add the basil really almost as the last thing and tons of it. I mean, the ratio is much basil, higher. Yeah, it's like almost all basil. And then just a little bit of oil. It's a fairly dry mixture. In any case, it's not going to be as good, but you know what? I, I use it in the winter and it's better than nothing. So I, I would say freezing ice cube trays. So what else can I do to preserve the tons of basil that I get? That's a problem, too. Well, you know, one thing is if you have the roots on, a lot of time they'll give it to you with the roots yeah. on. I get it with the roots. Yeah. So if you, you can treat it like flowers. You put it with roots down in a glass of water and leave it outside. It hates the refrigerator. But it's only going to last two or three days. I know. This right. is a problem. I would make pesto and freeze it. and It won't be it, as good, but at least the, it will be a happy thing yeah. in February. And then, you know, when you make the pesto for freezing, use more oil than you normally would and more cheese and everything else. Well, Eileen, thank you for calling. Thanks for calling. Yes. You're welcome. Thank <laughs> okay, you. Okay, take care. Okay. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, we're chatting with Daniela Martin about the next big food trend, bugs. That in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. 
So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. By the year 2050, world population is expected to reach almost 10 billion In a hot, crowded world, Daniela Martin says insects will be an important food source. Martin's new book is called Edible, an adventure into the world of eating insects and the last great hope to save the planet. Daniela, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. So you've gone through a whole long list you talk about in the book of all the things you've eaten. Your favorites you point out are waxworms, bees, wasps, and fried bamboo worms. So when you say favorites... Some just have a toastier, nuttier flavor. Uh, what does favorite mean? 
It's interesting you ask. I was recently reading a study on the nutritional components of different types of insects, and the ones that I like are all high in fat. <laughs> so, oh, good. Well, uh, yeah, bee brood, uh, wax moth larvae, um, bamboo worms, and these are just they're they're light, mild flavors. They're not intense uh, like a like a toe biter bug would be. Um, a toe biter bug. What's, what's, what it's the it's the giant it's the giant water bug, and it has it's called a toe biter because it actually has some powerful jaws that can bite down pretty hard on your toes in the water if you're in the lake. And, and, and that lake that lake is where? Well, actually, that and yeah. So I I'm from California, but I now live in Minnesota, and I've I've seen them here in the lakes, and I'm like, oh my gosh, because I had only seen them really huh. in Thailand, where they grind them up and they use them as this flavoring element to this particular type of curry seasoning, and it's this, uh, you know, umami je ne sais quoi <laughs> flavor that you can't get anywhere else, and that makes sense because if you've ever crunched down on one. It is the most overwhelming, complex flavor I've ever experienced. Well, I want to I want to come to that now because you there are two themes here. One theme is we're talking about food supply, a billion new people every you know ten or twenty years. That's on one hand, and the other hand, some of the stuff actually tastes good. So, do you put those two things together, or are those two separate, totally different ways of looking at this? That's something I actually have been thinking about quite a bit lately because it does feel like there are two sides of it. There's the sort of ethical push, which is, you know, eat bugs, save the world. They require less food and water and space to raise. They're an ethical source of protein. And the fact that that isn't, doesn't appear to be much of a motivator for people. So I, I don't know. I think of it as sort of the, the Tesla Motors approach to entomophagy where – Prior to the Tesla, electric vehicles used to be sort of a punishment car. They didn't go fast. They weren't sexy. They were just sort of this ethical contribution. But now they're fast, they're sleek, they're sexy, and everybody wants one. So that's sort of what we need to do for insects. Well, you mentioned in your book, The Bug Appetit Cafe in New Orleans, you know, six-legged salsa, crispy Cajun crickets, cinnamon bug crunch, chocolate chirp cookies. I like that one. Um, th- that's one way to go, right, which is to have fun with it. Sure. Well, in, in that sense, you're immersed in the context of insects because that's an insect museum. <laughs> so there's that. But you're not getting that cultural right. immersion. And it, it seems that the, the foodie culture tends to really lock on to that idea of getting an authentic cultural experience. And... That's something we haven't translated as well. You know, we've done a great job of adapting insects to our culture uh, in terms of you have your bug-based tortilla chips and chirp chips. And you you even have companies that are making pasta out of ground-up cricket flour and cookies and, and, and everything like that, things that we're already used to eating just combined with insects. But we, we haven't really, you know, we don't have... Japanese food comes from Japan. Mexican food comes from Mexico. Insects come from, you know, over a hundred different cultures around the world. I don't know which one you would choose. So let's talk about the future. Uh, You talk about that formula of FCR, food conversion ratio, and the inefficiency of eating beef. So when we're talking 10 to 1 with beef, what does that mean? Well, it could be that for a pound of beef, it requires that the cow eats 10 pounds of grain versus for a cricket, it could be pound for pound. Cricket eats a pound of grain. The cricket colony puts on a pound of growth. But even with the FCR, I'm not really seeing built into that calculation the fact that you're using the entire animal with crickets versus these other species where, you know, even chickens, there's still bones, feathers, feet, beaks that we're not using. Same with fish. So let's say in the year 2100, is it possible we'll solve the world hunger problem without having to eat insects? There'll be some other solution to this problem. That's a really great question. I mean, they're already getting going on the lab-grown meat. But all of those things require technology. And so I think it's kind of a, you know, there's people that that like to stay, quote-unquote, natural and insects would really be the, the natural side of that. I, I think that we should 
have everything going for us that we possibly can. You, 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 you want to keep the insect option alive and well. I think we should open all of our avenues uh, instead of trying to maneuver around one. I think we should absolutely be developing all of them. So, yes. <laughs> so let's talk about eating insects. So give us some examples of things you've eaten, the stuff you love, the stuff you didn't love, some of the most interesting uh, situations. I have had such incredible experiences eating insects. I think partly because a lot of the people that also are interested in eating insects are very interesting people. And that makes me think of this one bug-eating party in Japan where they brought in a giant hornet's nest full of pupae, which are you know right. baby hornets, basically. And they had us fish them out with chopsticks, and they were you know, delectable. They were like this creamy sushi. But I think probably the most interesting experience I had was in Thailand when I went to visit um, a man who farms sago grubs. And he he wanted to start um, a business selling these insects. Because in Thailand, that's a thing you can do. There's something like 25,000 cricket farms Edible oh. cricket farms in Thailand. This, you know, raising insects really? to sell for consumption is absolutely a career path there already. So he sent me back to my hotel with a literal baggie full of these squirming, wriggling, fat <laughs> worms. And I had no idea what I was going to do with them. But he assured me that they that my hotel would cook them up for me. And I thought that was I mean, pretty crazy. I mean, what? <laughs> I'm going to walk into the hotel kitchen and be like, here, I have this bag of worms. Uh, can you make something with this? And yet that is exactly what happened. And the the kid who did it seemed to have done it before. And then they served it to me uh, with a, a wonderful Thai beer. And it was fantastic. It was like a big plate of of really smushy potato chips. Now, when you say fantastic, do you mean it was fantastic compared to what you thought the experience was going to be like? Or do you mean, you know, compared to a big plate of French fries, it was fantastic? I think that it was as good as if I had been served a plate of shrimp. Really? Um, the texture would have been a little bit different. The shrimp would have been a bit firmer because they have all that muscle. Right. Um, whereas these guys were mostly fat. But uh, And it is really hard to divorce your your mental picture of how it's going to be. I, I don't know if there's a way to come into it totally neutral. But hopefully, as, as, as the world evolved, uh, more people will be able to do that. Well, 40 years ago or 50 years ago, if you had mentioned Chev, goat cheese, a lot of people probably would have thought, I don't want to eat cheese made from goat's milk. I mean, we've, we've come a long way. That's and a great you're right, example. eventually it's about marketing. I mean, you mentioned in your book, Chilean sea bass, you know, it's just a renaming of a of a sort of ugly toothfish, right? Yeah, it's about it's about marketing. It's also about changing our society a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm raising two young children now, and I'm very mindful not to give them this idea that insects are gross. So this is a ostensibly a food slash cooking show. So do you want to give us some tips on uh, cooking insects? I would say the best way that I've found to cook insects especially for first-timers, is, is, is to do a quick sauté because a sauté is very, uh, it's very familiar. So I would just sauté some onions uh, with a little butter and a little salt and then drop in some, some rinsed waxworms. Ideally, you've frozen them overnight so they're not all wriggling. Whip that up uh, and, and use it as a taco filling. It's, it's perfection. So, so, so now I'm going to be writing recipes someday. It'll say two cups, waxworms, comma, rinsed. <laughs> this yeah. is my future. And, I see it coming. Right. And the only thing is that you have to make sure that they don't pop. Oh, no. You mean explode? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk so about you don't that. Want the heat, you don't want them on the heat too, too long. They're a little bit like popcorn. Hmm. Um, you want to let them cook <laughs> until they, that, they, they become sort of firm, kind of like shrimp. But you don't really want to let them go too far beyond that because then they will pop and then they'll their little exoskeletons will just deflate like teeny tiny balloons. And that's less appetizing, I think. That's a, that's a great head note to the recipe. 
saute until firm, yeah. but not until yeah. they explode, right? Yeah. <laughs> Und- underneath all the fun, you are serious about this. So what would you like to see happen in the next 10 or 15 years? It used to be that I would have quite the docket list. A lot has happened. There are new companies, it seems like, every week or every month popping up. There are people who are doing recipes in already high-end restaurants like Noma. <laughs> when I was in Thailand, they their version of Costco actually had big bags of frozen insects in their freezer section. So we haven't quite come that far. But boy, just even in the last 10 years since I started getting into this, things have changed completely. So I think people are doing a fantastic job. I'm really, I'm impressed and I'm excited to see how it all turns out. Daniela, thank you. Uh, Why we should eat insects and how we should cook them and why they're so tasty. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Daniela Martin, author of Edible, an adventure into the world of eating insects and the last great hope to save the planet. You know, bugs rule the world. There are 850,000 different species and 10 quintillion on Earth. I think that's a million billion. And are they prolific? The African driver ant, for example, produces over 3 million eggs every 28 days. And of course, they're survivors. The orchid mantis masquerades as a flower to avoid being eaten. And the bombardier beetle sets off an explosion of sulfuric acid in the mouth of a predator. So, when it comes to eating insects, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Let's eat them before they eat us. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Barbados Grilled Fish. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. So, Albert just got back, one of our editors from Barbados, ostensibly on a work trip, but I think it was vacation. He ended up cooking with Miss Evelyn, who's a cook and matriarch of a large fishing family, And she does a grilled wahoo with a marinade and then a hot sauce to finish. So we adapted that, of course, here at Milk Street. And how did we get started? Well, Chris, we wanted to stay true to Miss Evelyn's recipe, but we also wanted to streamline it, as you say. So the first order of business was wahoo can be really hard to find here. So we use mahi-mahi, which has a similar sort of texture and flavor. And then as for that marinade you talk about, hers has a ton of ingredients. So we kind of boiled it down to the essentials, which is a lot of onion flavor between onion and garlic and chives that are all blended together, and then some herbs, a little bit of vinegar for acidity, and actually, traditionally, they use some golden rum, but that's kind of hard. We don't all have that in our pantry, so we use a little bit of brown sugar. Then we marinate it probably pretty quickly, right? Like 20 minutes or something? That's right, Chris. We say about 30 minutes, definitely no more than 40. The issue with fish is marinades can sometimes work a little bit too well in penetrating the fish, and the acidity can really start to break it down and change the texture. We grill it, I assume, over high heat and then move on to uh, the actual hot sauce, right? That's right, Chris. It's a really quick grill over high direct heat, just a few minutes per side, and then we finish it with this hot sauce. And this is a really interesting sauce, Chris. The base is this mustard turmeric blend, very flavorful, very kind of different. We also add scotch bonnet peppers because not only do we want the heat, but a little bit of that fruitiness and and then some lime juice and a little bit more brown sugar just to smooth it all out. So Albert goes on vacation, comes back with a recipe for a tropical Barbados grilled fish. It has a great sauce. Also, it's a thicker sauce. It's a little unusual. It really tastes great. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Barbados grilled fish at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News teaches us about the science and secrets of making cheese. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet 
made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Most Year Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your culinary questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Marilyn Rath from Denver. Hi, Marilyn from Denver. How can we help you today? Well, I'm always been concerned about onions, mm-hmm. okay? I use them a lot in my stir fries and all things. And I wonder about the potency and the difference between shallots and scallions and red onions and yellow onions. So I'd like to hear Chris and Sarah talk more in depth about that. Well, let me start with yellow onions, which okay. um, are sort of the all-purpose onion, but also a good yes. cooking onion because they have a high sulfur content. So what makes you cry when you cut them is what makes them give you the same thing, develops as it cooks, that sulfur, that depth of flavor, that wonderful yeah, sort of backdrop. So yellow onions are great, sort of all-purpose and good cooking onion. Yes. The Vidalia and Walla Walla and those guys, you really don't do as well, don't give you the depth of flavor when you cook them because they're... They don't have the same sulfur content. Yes, yes. I and and also, a, a yellow onion, we tested this, ends up being the sweetest onion when cooked. When cooked. Because the sulfur, the chemistry oh, okay. of cooking changes it. So the yellow onion is the sharpest one, raw, ah. turns out actually to be sweeter sweetest. than like a red onion when cooked. Yeah. Which is why you yes. also want to use it for yeah. onion soup. That would be your choice for yeah. onion soup. Is that uh-huh. Chris, you want to take on some of the others? Well, you, the first question you have to ask is whether you're using this raw or cooked, right? Yeah, mostly cooked. I use the uh, shallots, and I find they're really quite popular in Asian dishes. They are. They, they are. fry them. Fried. Yeah, as a yes, topping. Yes, and they just seem to be milder. I cut them in thirds for some chicken and sizzling shallot dish I made that came out wonderfully, so I'm very into shallots, but I'll have to keep in mind the yellow onion. Shallots are cool. I like to mince them and put them in my vinaigrettes. Unlike other onions, they don't give you onion breath. They just make it more Uh interesting, my vinaigrettes. They are a pain to peel. But they're bigger. But they're bigger than they used to be. They are. That, so you treat yeah, them like I, an onion. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And then you probably yes. use a lot of scallions in your stir fries, right? Oh, I do scallions so much in stir fries, in marinades. I love scallions. Scallions are also good. If I, I often cook uh, poached chicken and just a lot of water, the, the Chinese method. I throw in a bunch uh-huh. of scallions and ginger in, in the water, and it really helps you get terrific broth. They're good for that, too. Yes, yes, I agree. All right, so Marilyn, um, I hope this helped you, and, uh, you know, have fun with those onions. Yes, I will. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Deb from Coeur d'Alene. How can Sarah and I help you? Uh, my question is about uh, New York-style pizza, more specifically the dough for the crust. I have a recipe that I've been using for more than 20 years, which I like, but it still doesn't come close to the pies in New York. I just can't seem to get it right. And I'm wondering how much of this could be because of the water. I keep hearing that the water is so much better there. 
<laughs> my theory is this is complete nonsense. And it's something that <laughs> New York City has like glommed onto somehow. But Sarah lives in New York. What do you think? Well, let me just say this. I don't know if it's true or not. I do know that the water in New York, it's soft water, which does have an effect on gluten. But I wanted to ask Deb, what is it that you don't like about yours? Mainly the consistency. I can't get the crisp crust that folds that I get there. Now, I have a pizza oven, oh, and okay. I have all the equipment, so I was hoping... You really have everything um, you need to make professional pizza dough. That's what you're doing. I think so. Do you know what kind of water you have in that department, I the pH? Soft. Yeah. Of all, look, all the things that contribute to the perfect pizza, I mean, there's so many variables... I would think the pH of the water would... Would be the least of it. Yeah, would, would not be in the top 10. The two things I can say that we know make a big difference is the hydration level, of course. That is a percentage of water to the weight of the whole dough. And the other thing we discovered a year ago was the temperature of the dough before you roll it out and bake it. And we found if the dough is at 75 degrees, you get a really great crust that bubbles up and is chewy and crispy. If the dough is 65 to 70, it's cooler, it doesn't. I wonder whether your, your kitchen is not as warm, for example, as a pizzeria in New York. You're probably onto something because the kitchen that I'm in right now, it stays about 72 degrees. I'm letting the dough sit for three days before I try to use it. So I'm bringing it out of a pretty right. cold refrigerator. For how long? An hour... Maybe yeah, two. I think that's the problem because I, I do that too. I make a three-day dough. But if I let it sit for an hour, hour and a half, I know the temperatures, it's you know high 60s. It's not in the 70s. But you can take the balls of dough and put them in a plastic container and put them in warm water if you want to heat them to up a little. To warm them up faster. It's the only thing I've found that makes a big difference. That's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Give it a shot because... That really is. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's your problem. Because think about it, a pizzeria... It's hot. <laughs> the dough is not chilled. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Yay, Chris. Well, she's got to try it. But I'm going to try yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, I... and would you please get back to us? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, Deb, thanks. Deb, let us know. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mostly Radio. If you need help illuminating the mysteries of food, give us a call at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Adolf Lopez. Hi, Adolf. Where are you calling from? Well, I'm vacationing in California. I live in New Orleans. Oh, nice. Both nice. And the question has to do with, is it possible or is roux, especially the kind of dark red-brown roux that you make for gumbo, is that an issue for gluten? Uh, we were asked that by someone, and I started thinking, well, how does gluten form? Flour and water? But when you cook a roux that long and dark, you know, does that affect its ability to form gluten? Well, we know that a roux that's brown does not thicken the same way, um, you know, a white roux would. But I think yeah. the gluten is still them in them their hills. The first question is, if you cook a roux, can someone who wants to be or has to be gluten-free consume it? Yeah. And the answer is that no. doesn't work because... The proteins in flour, glutenin and gliadin, they will come together when you make a dough. Water allows them to come together and connect. But I believe the allergy is to the gliadin. And so whether or not gluten is formed is irrelevant. You still have essentially the gluten. The proteins, gluten and gliadin, are what cause the problem, not the formation of quote-unquote gluten. So that's not going to solve the problem yeah. by cooking. Yeah, because... Yeah. I was doing some research, and uh, there was a Bon Appetit site that used King Arthur flour gluten-free, and they made a roux for a, a light roux for turkey gravy, and they thought that would solve the problem. But lots of other people had tried gluten-free flours, and when they cooked it to that degree, the red-brown color for roux, it just didn't taste the same, and, yeah. and that's the basis of the whole gumbo. You know what? It's I, not going to taste the same. I think you're same. stuck. I mean, yeah. you could try some other kind of flour like almond flour, but I don't think no. you're going to want to make a roux out of almond flour. So I think, yeah, I don't think there's a way to get around it. Get around this. No. 
unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I thought not myself, but it, it, uh, it had never come up. And I've cooked a roux for halal, and I've cooked roux for kosher, and this one had never come up it before. stumped you, yeah. There's only one you might try, <laughs> maybe, is brown rice flour. Rice flours won't have a really odd flavor. And it's a and single ingredient as opposed to the mixes in a lot of I the gluten-free it, flours. it'll toast pretty well. So you, you might give that a shot, but that's the only one I could recommend. It'll still know. probably be a little different, yeah. Well, it will be, but yeah. will it be acceptable? But, I mean, you're just wondering. It's not like you have to do this, right? Well, it, it came up, and I'm sitting here with my friend and, and ex-Jeff Ron, and we were putting our heads together and trying to research and think, was it even possible? And to try to accommodate somebody, make a small batch and something like that, I was just afraid that whatever we did, because it's such a core aspect of the taste of the gumbo, that if we uh, we tried other things, it, it might not work out. Although we didn't get a chance to try We may actually try. Well, if you do, you got to let us know. And I agree with Chris. Okay. I think the brown rice flour is the best bet. Yeah, we'll give that a shot. Uh, it won't be as good, but it, it might be good enough. Yes, yeah. yeah. So. Okay, Adolfo. Okay, all right. Thank all you. Right. Thanks for calling. Thank you so okay. much. Yeah. All right. all right. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Dawn, and here's my tip. Next time you're using store-bought pesto, mix in tahini. It thickens it up, makes it extra creamy, and is a quick way to elevate an otherwise mediocre pesto. Thanks! Love the show! If you'd like to share your own cooking tip or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's hear from mad French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? What's going on in Paris? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. What's on your mind? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm into cheese making, really into cheese making. I'm fascinated by the fact that you can actually make cheese instead of just buying it. And in fact, I've been concentrating my efforts on the most popular cheese ever worldwide, which is mozzarella cheese. So you've had your hands in some very hot water. Exactly right. So in fact, everything started in Italy, in the north of Naples, where I made a trip and, and tried to learn from the best in business, from mozzarella masters. The, the process is quite complicated, and, and that was surprising for me, since that cheese appears to be so simple, right? For me, it was just... You take milk, you separate it into curds and whey, and then from the curds, you press them, you stretch them, and you make mozzarella. And that was the initial plan. I'm afraid to, 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 to tell you that nothing went according to this plan. What did you learn that makes you think it's complicated? I had three main failures when it comes to making mozzarella. The first failure was related to milk. I thought I could use any milk doesn't work this way. It just has to be a higher fat content? Uh, wh wh what was the problem? No. So you see, milk can be raw, uh, can be filtered, can be thermized, can be low pasteurized, highly pasteurized, or even uh, pasteurized at the ultra high temperature. So that's at least the bacterial levels that you can find in milk. And then there's the fat treatment. It can be skim, it can be reduced fat, it can be whole milk. So, so, so it makes for loads of combinations of milk. The closer it is to its raw state, while still maintaining a food safety, the better your curds will be, basically. So that, that was my first failure, not considering milk as important as it should be. The second failure I faced within my cheese-making journey was to underestimate rennet. So if you're not familiar with it, rennet is the main coagulating agent when you're making cheese. So it can come from, uh, you know, animal, vegetal, or even fungi or m microbial uh, origins. It can have a single strength, double strength, and not picking the right one for the job can be a problem. You have to go to a cheese-making supplier to get rennet. Where do you buy rennet? So I bought rennet in a pharmacy in France. It's a bit odd, but you can find rennet in pharmacies. 
I don't know, it's probably part of our culture. But usually, yes, you're right. You have to buy this in dedicated, you know, cheese-making stores. And the best way to do this is to do it online, in fact, since you have access to a, a, a wider array of products. Okay, so you get the, now, now if you get the right rennet, it becomes springier, is that right? If you get the, the right rennet, then you are able to make better curds. You get those beautiful, a bit firm, yet soft and, and consistent curds. And I thought it was the end of it. I thought I solved the problem. Still not the case. I faced my third and last failure in this cheese-making journey, the problem of the acidity. To make mozzarella cheese, to stretch mozzarella cheese, you need to have an acidic milk at first. The acidity of the milk should be at 5.2 in terms of pH. So, so, the, so that's only slightly acidic then? Yeah, exactly. That's slightly acidic. Exactly. It's, it's not sour, lemon sour or anything like this. No, it's slightly acidic, but it's very important because if you're not staying within this pH range, then it's not going to stretch. There are two ways you could get your milk to be slightly acidic. The first method is the traditional method. In this one, you're basically using a byproduct from the activity of bacteria. Let's say you're starting with raw milk. In raw milk, there are plenty of bacterias. Those bacterias, they tend to produce lactic acid as they are, you know, digesting lactose in milk. And this is making the milk slightly more acidic. So this is one way, but it's very hard to control. It's very hard to be consistent with this method. Now, there is another way, and this one is, is way more simple. And this is the one I, I would suggest to any amateur cheese maker. And it's to basically acidify the milk with, I don't know, lemon juice or just, just a pinch of citric acid. So you need a pH meter of some kind, obviously, right? Yes, of course. You have to be very precise. That's probably one of the aspects that I underestimated as well. But overall, I would say that failing within this cheese-making journey was very interesting. It taught me a lot. So, 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 okay, at the end of the day, you went through this, you went to northern Italy, etc. Did you find making your own mozzarella was something you would do again? Did you enjoy it? How good was the mozzarella, etc.? The process was very enjoyable. Would I do it again? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. The thing is that I thought it would be easier. I was able to make, you know, decent mozzarella after three tries. But to make really, really good mozzarella, like, like that, that would taste, you know, nearly as good as the one I had in Italy. It's a process that takes basically forever. Well, it would, be, it would be very disappointing if you, an amateur from Paris, went down to Italy and in half a day became a top mozzarella maker. That would be, that would be really disappointing. Yeah, I had to right? lower my expectations. Yes, you're right. Well, like, look, that gives me faith, right? I mean, great food products take time and a lifetime of experience. That makes me feel good about the industry, right? It's, it shouldn't be easy. Yeah, you're, prob you're probably right. It's probably for greater good. Alex, thank you. This was uh, True Mozzarella Confessions. Thank you so much. That was Alex Inews, host of Alex French Guy Cooking on YouTube. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Cheesemaking has really gotten out of hand. In our small part of Vermont, goats are running rampant, and cellars are full of chev, tom, and crottin. As Cole Porter wrote in 1941, quote, Farming, that's the fashion of our great celebrities of today. So I'm waiting for Madonna to shovel some manure, or maybe JC can help with the birth of a kid at 2 a.m. on a very cold February morning. Then we'll know, finally, that farming is a fashion statement. Until then, maybe we should just appreciate farmers for what they really do. That's the hard work that feeds the world. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening. 
Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubub Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.